I shook every audience member's hands and the audience members kept saying, I would have paid more for that. So I roll into Iowa at age 11 and people are like, where did this brother come from? Here I am in my early 20s with, with Caesar's Palace licensing an idea that I created and I caught the bug, man. As an entrepreneur, it makes you responsible for your own success. There was nothing online, nothing like that. And so I built it. Leverage that network because you can buy clicks, but you can't buy trust. You're traveling as a black founder and you go to the lounge and people are like, can I help you, sir? Comparison is the thief of joy. What's up, Unfound Nation? Dan Kihanya here, your host for Founders Unfound. Ever wonder if those donation pleas on Wikipedia and PBS actually work? Well, we're here to find out through our guest for this episode, Khalil Ashanti. He's our first military veteran. Thank you for your service, Khalil, and all those who serve. And he is bringing us the concept of volunteer payment to the live entertainment space. This episode is sponsored by Founders Live. As always, if you're excited about what we're doing with Founders Unfound, you can find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and now YouTube. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. Or go to our website, foundersunfound.com, and sign up for our updates. Please follow, like, and share, and help us grow. Now, on with the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented backgrounds. This is episode eight in our series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Dan Kihanya. Let's get on it. Today, we have Khalil Ashanti, founder and CEO of We Show Up. The We Show Up platform connects audiences and creators economically when the value of their event experience is at its highest. Afterwards, welcome to the show, Khalil, and thank you for making the time. Hey, Dan. Good to be here. So I somewhat mysteriously introduced We Show Up. So let's start (laughs) off with helping our listeners understand what exactly does the company do? What does it do? So here's what We Show Up does. What if you could make a reservation, see the show, and then as you're leaving, get a text or an email asking you how much you thought it was worth? So in a nutshell, that's what it is. We help creators and audiences connect at the time when, I mean, the perceived value of any event is highest afterwards anyway. You don't really know the value of something until you've seen it. And so we, you know, I stumbled upon that, wrote the code, and, and here we are. That's awesome. So I imagine you focus on live performances and, and aspiring performers. I'll tell you what, man, it's been exciting. We, I mean, live, live performances, of course, aspiring performers, but we're also working with clients around the world that are actually people you might have heard of, you know, people from America's Got Talent who are trying to sell tickets. Because what's happening is called sort of the, well, there's two things happening. The Netflix effect, which is nobody wants to leave their house anymore. And right. uh, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I, I love me some narcos, right? And then um, <laughs> the other thing is that the uh, traditional audience of the arts is aging out of participation. And there's a new audience who has never paid full price for music. And so getting them to come and see the arts in a traditional sense is going to be a lot harder. And so basically we show up de-risks that conversation. But the other part that's happened since I saw you last, Dan, is virtual events. We've been approached by companies who are doing virtual and VR events where you literally don't need to leave your couch. And that's exactly what they want you to do. Stay home. Brilliant. That's fascinating. Wow. We need to unpack all of that for sure. (laughs) Um, This is cool stuff. But let's start off a little bit with understanding who you are. I mean, you have a great name, but tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you were in the Air Force. That's right. Um, and you've done many things since then, but tell us a little bit about where where you were born, where you came from. Well, I was born. No, um, <laughs> I was a little Richard Pryor for you. I was born in Germany, raised in Japan till I was 10 or 11, and then went to high school in Iowa. And so I did join the U.S. Air Force. I joined the Air Force to escape a violently abusive childhood. Spent most of my life, as most young boys do, trying to please their father, only to find out that this guy wasn't even my real dad. And I found out the night before I left for basic training, and my mom swears she told me before, she said, I probably just forgot. 
So off I go to the U.S. Air Force. My entire identity is just shattered. And my job in the U.S. Air Force was actually called Information Management Specialist, which is a fancy way of saying I worked with computers and I was a mailman. People often don't think about the fact that the military is, it's like a large company, right? And so, yeah, there's people who are out, you know, sort of on the front line, so to speak. There's a whole set of organizational aspects that need to manage all that. And there's people who do, you know, quote unquote, normal jobs. And so I think people, a lot of people don't think about that when they think you're in the military, you think, oh yeah, you were fighting and you were being shot at and maybe you were, but yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's a little bit of that, but I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's the, the air force as a company, even to even put it more specifically, it's, you know, when you get stationed at a base, Nellis air force base is a good example. It's a city. So the military base has everything that a typical city would need. But as a GI, as a soldier, as an airman, you can live your whole life without going off base. So there's a post office, there's a mall, there's a Burger King, there's a gym, hospital. I mean, you know, grocery store and a mailman, (laughs) which was me. There you go. So it sounds like you had a, a tough childhood, both in the house and sort of it must have been challenging to go from Germany to Japan. I imagine that one of your parents was in the military as well. Is that why you moved around a lot? Yeah, yeah. My dad, my uh, well, stepdad was in the military. And when you're a kid, I think up to a certain age, you don't know the difference. You just go where your parents go. And I'm the oldest of four. So uh, my younger brother, my brother, who's two years younger than me at the time, it affected him differently than it affected me. But I mean, I, it, it was kind of a living hell of a childhood. But you know, thinking back, I just think, what a cool experience, though, to live in Japan in the 80s. I mean, we had Apple IIe computers on our desk before the U.S. kids did. So I just try to look at the blessings and, and try to, you know, try to figure out where um, I can use my story to help others. And that's kind of what led to this whole computer thing. You know, Japanese was my first language. So being black and speaking Japanese fluently and Liking computers wasn't a great way to make friends in the hip hop age, <laughs> you know, and, right. uh, I wasn't that good at sports. So I roll into Iowa at age 11 and people are like, where did this brother come from? <laughs> yes, you must have been quite an anomaly uh, for people to figure out. You know, you don't really think about it when you're going through it. But looking back, it's uh, everything about my story. I guess one of my um, acting coaches said it best. I ended, I took an acting class from Jeffrey Tambor, and he said, you know, one day your pain is going to be somebody else's survival guide. So don't be afraid to share and let people know what you really went through. Wow, that's profound. He's the, let's see, he he's from Arrested Development? That's is right. That? Yeah, yeah. yeah. George Bluth on Arrested Development. Right, yeah. right. Wow, you took an acting class. Well, we have to get into that for sure. But so why did you pick the Air Force? This is interesting because you're coming out of this. What you realized, I guess, was an abusive situation. And it seems interesting that you kind of went to the same place where your stepdad's origin, I guess, story is. Why the Air Force and not uh, the circus or (laughs) something else? Well, I guess living in, in Davenport, Iowa at the time, there were not a lot of options. I mean, Iowa is a big sports state. You got wrestling and football and so many great things to do there as a teenager. But the family business was the military and affording university uh, just wasn't an option. And so I think as a kid, you do sort of what you see, what's around you. And my, my stepdad was in the army. And then the other thing is, I don't know if you remember this, if it was this way in your high school or any of your listeners, but the hallways were crawling with military recruiters, right? It was like, yes. you didn't have to go far, even like recruiting offices, you know, not now they have Starbucks. You used to have recruiting right. offices everywhere, just like a Starbucks, you know? And so there was a recruiter who came to our school and I was looking for a way out. I was like, I don't want to live here. I don't want to live this life. I need to get as far away from this as possible. And her name was Betty Jazz. I'll never forget her. And she's like, hey, Khalil, you'd be a great candidate for the Air Force. And you can, you know, sign on the dotted line and you can be whatever you want. And so I was like, I'm in. You had me at line. So <laughs> <laughs> so I signed up. 
And believe it or not, I could always draw. I love drawing to this day. I've been drawing longer than I've been performing. And I wanted to be an architect. So I signed up to be an architect in the U.S. Air Force. And that's how they got me. Well, if Betty, if you're listening, I, I think hopefully you'll hear that this is a success story. That's that's interesting. So you're in the Air Force. You're doing what you're doing. How do you go from the Air Force to performing? Well, since 1953, the U.S. Air Force has had a group called Tops in Blue. And they lost their funding in 2016. I think that was the last year. So for about 60 give or take, you know, 60 years, the Air Force has had an all active duty military performing group whose job was to perform for troops in the most dangerous parts of the world and remind them what they were fighting for. And uh, as I was doing my interview with my recruiter, she told me about this. She's like, hey, Khalil, what are some of the things you do in your community? You know, as the Air Force recruiters, we like to recruit people who are active in their communities. And I'm like, well, you know, I go to church. My mom teaches Sunday school. Sometimes I help with the kids, you know, watch, watch the kids during Sunday school. And I do stand-up comedy at the Funny Bone Comedy Club, which was a local comedy club at the time in Davenport. And my recruiter was like, oh, wow, there's this thing you can do in the military and the Air Force where it's a worldwide talent competition and the most talented soldiers have to compete. And then if you win, then you get to tour the world and perform in dangerous places. But you know what, Khalil, you're probably not funny enough, so don't worry about it. It's called Tops in Blue. <laughs> so as a high schooler, you had been doing stand-up comedy? That's right. I didn't have the the money or the resources to do performing arts school or some of the honey boo-boo track, you know, really, you know, <laughs> I was always trying to cheer up my mom or my little brother. After the beatings, after the fights, after the arguments, I remember there's one thing where my stepdad used to make me and my little brother at the time stand at attention overnight and he would lay a belt across our feet while he slept on the couch so if you moved the, the belt buckle would make a sound and he'd wake up and you'd catch a beating so I remember I think I was 12 and my little brother must have been 10 we're standing there overnight because of something we had done we were being punished for Standing up for long periods of time is one of the most popular torture tactics. They used it for Al-Qaeda. You, know, I mean, you can read about it. It's everywhere. And so we were forced to do this as children, standing overnight. And we were not allowed to cry because that would show weakness. So my little brother starts sort of whimpering and crying because his back starts to hurt. I mean, we had been standing for four hours at least. And so to keep him from crying, I did impressions of my stepdad who was asleep. And it made him laugh. And that was the first time I felt a sense of self-worth that I had never felt before. All my self-worth before was tied to the fact that I was the only black person for miles and I hope I'm good at sports. Now I realize, well, wow, maybe there's another avenue for me. Maybe there's another way for me to be of use in this world, despite the fact that this man laying here made me feel like I was worth nothing. So that's how I learned I could make people laugh. And then I started making my mom laugh when she's washing dishes and she'd have tears in her eyes and I'd start doing impressions. And then I'd started Looney Tunes. And then, you know what the thing was, Dan, was Eddie Murphy. I was like, oh, yeah. when Eddie Murphy, you know, like I'm talking about 80s Eddie Murphy, right? This dude was like the Michael Jackson of comedy, you know? So I saw Eddie and I thought, wow, that's his job. And that just sort of ballooned into me performing and Never being disruptive in school, but keeping kids laughing. And then there were talent shows and I could help people forget their pain. And in turn, they would help me forget mine. And performing just kind of blossomed out of that. Wow. So you're in the Air Force and you uh, drop this nugget and they say Tops is the place for you. And so you start performing basically for a job, I guess, in the Air Force and that continued beyond once you got out of the Air Force? Yeah. So what happens is you join the Air Force, you go through basic training, you go through tech school, like an Air Force, like an airman, right? You have a job as an airman and you have to do that job well. You're expected to be a productive member of the Air Force, of the military, and you do chemical warfare training and all of these things. But what you can do is in your spare time after work, you can go to this talent show and try out for the Tops in Blue competition. 
And if you are selected, then the, the Thompson Blue staff based in San Antonio will go to your commander and say, hey, Khalil is a talented soldier. We think he can represent the Air Force well, performing around the world. Would you let him go on what was called a permissive TDY, temporary duty assignment? So for 10 months out of the year, they pulled me out of that unit and put me into this elite entertainment unit, which we were brought down to San Antonio. They brought in choreographers from Broadway and lighting and staging people. And they built this show around the talents of these soldiers who had competed from all over the world to be a part of it. And so that's how Tops and Blue was formed. And and it was 18 hour days. I think probably 60% of the people who are selected don't make it to the end of the tour because we're our own uh, crew, uh, lighting crew, we're our own technicians. And we the, the same people you see singing and dancing are the same people that unloaded that truck and put up those lights and EQ'd the, the monitors and everything else. So it was crazy, man. It was like, one one minute you're wearing steel toe boots and back braces and work gloves, and the next minute you're in sequins, shooking and jiving. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! I wrote a pilot for a television series about it because it was actually uh, my my one man show. Basic training is actually based on this, and and I got interest from HBO and all kinds of different networks because it ended up being like Band of Brothers with instruments or or like Mash but with music, you know what I mean? It was, right. it was pretty, uh, the stories are, we could do a whole nother interview on that, man. That was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I watched a couple of the YouTube videos. You did this one, one man show called basic training. Yeah. Um, and this was after you left the air force, right? That's right. And so that was, I guess your foray into performing. And you also spent some time kind of in Hollywood too, right? That's right. So what, what happened was I was stationed in at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas with the 57th Fighter Wing. And I toured with Tops in Blue uh, a lot while I was in the military, which kept me you know, away from uh, the base. And then when I got back, you get an honorable discharge and they hand you your little piece of paper and you get your cheap suit and you go get a job. You know, <laughs> so I go downtown and and I actually ended up performing magic in Japanese at Caesars Palace, which we could probably save for another interview. There's a lot of interesting stories there, but but I, yeah, I ended up <laughs> getting a job performing magic in Japanese at Caesar's Palace. And and then I decided after performing for four years doing that, three shows a night, six nights a week at, at Caesar's Palace, that I needed to move to L.A. And, and become what I thought was a real actor. So I needed to get my teeth bleached and wear a tight shirt and get a goatee and get some earrings. And none, and fortunately, I never got that far because I ended up taking Jeffrey's class, which is where basic training ended up happening. And sort of the arc of that story is that I came in wanting to be the next funny black guy. And Jeffrey Tambor was like, look, man, you have a story that's worth telling. Stop trying to hide behind what everybody else is doing. Hollywood doesn't need more funny black guys. We need more real people, regardless of what color you are. So if you're not going to tell a story and make the audience care, please just get out of my class. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. Right? It was yeah, real, man. It wasn't like, real. You, know, you hear about Hollywood acting classes and people up there, you know, trying to look all, you know, Hollywood. He, Jeffrey was about the real. He was like, we, we got to bring this, bro, because you're not be wasting my time. And the people he had in his class, Dan, were... They were on TV. Like these were people at the time that were on the Buffy, the Vampire Slayers and the that 70s shows like these people were there to work. And I just felt really fortunate to uh, to have been a part of that because that's where basic training was was birthed. Outstanding. Outstanding. Wow. This is an amazing story. We will take a short break to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Khalil Ashanti from We Show Up. Hi, this is Nick Hughes from Founders Live a growing global community of entrepreneurial inspiration, education, and entertainment. The Founders Live movement includes unforgettable live-streamed happy hour pitch competitions held in over 50 cities worldwide. And the monthly events are coupled with a growing online platform where articles, videos, expert talks, technologies, and tools together help create world-class entrepreneurs. Our vision is to raise the tide for all startup regions but specifically second and third tier markets around the world to ultimately power the pulse of early stage entrepreneurship and creativity. We'd love for you to be a part of the movement. Check it out and join for free at founderslive.com. 
We're back with Khalil Ashanti from We Show Up. And before the break, Khalil, we were talking about your tremendous first career, I guess, or second yeah. career. You were in the military. You were kind of in the performance world. You were part of a Hollywood scene. And your journey took you to this one-man show. Let's talk a little bit about how you have decided to make the transition from performer to entrepreneur. How did that come about? You know, it was really not intentional. I just think, you know, I've I've seen enough calendars, as they say. I'm old enough to remember when you had to use a phone book to get gigs. You had to pick up the phone and talk to people. And then being a lot of phone book. Right? Right? <laughs> it's what you get hit upside the head with when you no. <laughs> yeah, for those listeners below the age of, let's say, 30 or 25, a phone book was actually, if you wanted somebody's phone number, it wasn't programmed into your phone because you had a analog landline. There was a big, fat book that was probably three inches thick, and that's where phone numbers were kept. That's, that's, right. where you, that's how you found out how to contact people. And And if you had a company... You would try to name it starting with an A so you could be at the front of the phone book. Yes, that's why there's a lot of acmes. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be flipping through all those pages. So, but yes, yeah, so I remembered, you know, to answer your question about the, the journey from actor to entrepreneur was that you had to be an entrepreneur to be a successful actor because everything went online and you had access to so much more information. And I remember the first time I realized that was when I auditioned at Caesar's Palace to be a magician. I told them that I could perform it in Japanese, and that's what got me the gig, because they were had an uptick in Japanese guests at the time. This was 97, 98, right? And, and, and so I decided to translate their show into Japanese, and then Caesar's Palace licensed it from me. Really? Yeah. So wow. here's the, Yeah, right. So and you've heard my background. That's not something that w- people like me didn't... People like us didn't do things like that from where I was from. It was... You know, my yeah. parents, the story and that the story that was given to me that my life journey was get you a check, get you a steady check from whoever and and shut up and don't bump into their furniture. We don't start businesses. We don't come up with ideas. Nobody want to hear what you got to say. Well, here I am in my early 20s with, with Caesar's Palace licensing an idea that I created and I caught the bug, man. That was my first thing where I was like, okay, I can be an actor and make money like that. And then I can have other things and be an entrepreneur. And then I started to see Diddy and Jay-Z and all these other people start to be more than just a performer. And it, that was it, man. I was addicted. And and so, you know, I ended up moving to LA. And then I, the other thing I, I did was I, I started messing with websites. HTML was in its infancy. And if you knew what you were doing, you could build, I think it was called Angel Fire. You could build these really ugly, crappy sites for your friends on Angel Fire. Oh, yeah, Fire, I remember Angel Fire. Right? And Metro Cities and all these. So I just had this voracious appetite for knowledge. And and so always trying to learn and and and, and see ways that I can, you know, differentiate myself. And so that that's how it all started. So by the time I got to performing basic training and, and, and taking it all over the world, and then it being on Broadway, I, I felt like being an entrepreneur was, y- you had to be. That makes sense. I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap. I mean, it's really interesting that you bring up Jay-Z and Diddy and, you know, such a tragedy. Even Kobe was yeah. showing that you could take this, maybe it's the the risk-taking or the appetite for taking on new things, taking on different roles, which performers end up having to do quite a bit and have to get comfortable with. Yeah. And also probably getting comfortable with rejection, which happens a lot as an entrepreneur. So there's a lot of overlap, at least from a business entrepreneurial side, I see with people who sort of have this performance aspect of their character. We've talked to several entrepreneurs who were athletes who actually made it to pretty elite levels. And they've talked about how that translated into being an entrepreneur. That's great that you fell into it. And I, I do think there's some interesting aspects of this common thread of your life where you've been able to adapt and then overcome and create momentum and growth that just the world gets to benefit from. So the fact that you could speak Japanese and you can <laughs> use that and the fact that 
you've used your performance out of necessity. You created this ability to make people laugh uh, and probably cry too. And so I think it's amazing. And you know, the other thing, Dan, is I feel like it becomes, even as an entrepreneur, one of the greatest realizations was that it makes you responsible for your own success. Is that, you know, yes, degrees are important. I don't mean to demean the value of an education, but you got to have a talent for your talent and a degree is not enough. You know, lots of people with degrees, but if you don't know what to do with it, if you don't have that drive and the ability to really understand how you can add value to other people's lives, then it's just a piece of paper. And so that's really what inspired me is the agency of taking responsibility for my own success. And as an actor, and then in the startup world, I'm seeing it even more. I, I could just, I feel like I could write a book about the commonalities between an actor begging for attention from an agent because they want to be in a movie in Hollywood and a, a startup entrepreneur begging for money from an investor because they think the investor is the key to their success. There's a lot of similarities in those parallel worlds for sure. So let's talk a little bit more about how did we show up actually, how was it born? So basic training took me all over the world. And it got me reviews and, and a lot of legitimacy and built a brand for me in the theater and the performing arts world. And it was time for a new show. And I wrote a new show about the childhood of Richard Pryor. And one of the things that stuck with me is that way back when we were performing with Tops in Blue, and I was touring the world as a soldier performing, we had to shake the hands of every audience member at the end of the show. Because oftentimes, these audience members were sitting on tanks, and we were the last thing that they saw before they went to battle. And like literally the last thing they saw. And, and so it, it stuck with me as you would talk to these soldiers and they would thank you. And then I kept performing. And then when I did basic training, I would stand at the exit and thank everybody. Hundreds and hundreds of shows. I shook every audience member's hands and the audience members kept saying, I would have paid more for that. I would have paid more for that. And I was like, well, OK. I mean, that was the early social media, right? When you actually talk yeah. to people. And right. So, so you know, <laughs> God forbid you, you know talk to yeah. people and not hide behind the screen name. Fast forward to 2017, I want to write a new show and get it out on the road and test it. And I'm like, well, how, what am I going to charge people for tickets? Because as a performer with a huge amount of experience at every level of the business, I know ticket prices are a best guess. There's a little marketing, and you know, it's but people people are guessing. You have your hard costs, but I just thought, okay, well, let's, let's, let's try something. And so I decided to ask the audience and I did pay what you want, sort of, you know, pass the hat. And I made more money that way than charging $20 a person. But as the entrepreneur hat on, as an actor hat, I was like, man, I'm, I paid my rent, you know, but then as an entrepreneur, my mind went to, well, how do I market to these people? That's fascinating because I think that's so counterintuitive or maybe just counter practice right uh -huh. of the way the, the industry works is that you know hey i'm renting this hall or i'm paying this fee or uh, you know whatever it is and i gotta get people to commit to an economic transaction up front that's right um, and then they get what they get that's right and like you said that has been the driver you know the advertising industrial complex has used scarcity of information as a driver and we as performers have been you know We've been subject to it. You rent a place, you want to make your money back. But what's happened over the last couple of decades is that there's a currency of attention that long-term is going to make you more money. Yes, I can charge people. I mean, I've performed on Broadway. Like I, I could charge people 50 bucks and I could probably get it. But when I actually asked the audience afterwards what they thought it was worth, I made more money. And I couldn't market to any of these people. And I thought there had to be some kind of digital tool, right? That allows you to let people make a reservation so they still have that commitment up front. Give me $5, see the show. As you're leaving, you get a text or an email that says, how much did you think it was worth? And there was nothing online, nothing like that. And so I built it. That's awesome. That epiphany makes so much sense. But to, for you to have the thinking outside the box to even try that, you know, you see Wikipedia, and obviously, if you think back to the good old days of PBS and NPR and their pledge drives, they seem to be effective enough. But I think most companies are afraid, right? They're afraid yeah. that they're not giving enough value. And so 
get as much money as you can now, right? And it's refreshing to see a service like yours, which is take the life cycle or the life relationship you can have with the customer as the end goal. And so it's not about this transaction or that event or this specific ability to extract money. It's about if they love what you do, if they appreciate it, and you appreciate that it's their choice yeah. and their ability to say, my attention was worth this, right? The saying is always, well, there's two hours of my life I'll never get back if you go yeah. and watch a bad movie, right? That's right. Uh, and most people don't talk about there's $10.18 or $20 or whatever it is these days to go to the movies, right? They talk about, you know, my time, my attention. That's right. My intensity was given and it wasn't reciprocated in the way that I wanted. And people have a hard time understanding the value of something until after they've experienced it, right? And so like what you're saying, which is it's really the economics of perceived value, whether it's a movie. And, and I feel like what I stumbled upon and ended up solving a problem that so many theaters are dealing with was how do we help the audience get what they want anyway, which is a say in how they perceive experiences. And, and so it just really ballooned from there, man. I mean, it took me about six, seven months to code it up and built this really ugly prototype and used it and ended up. So I, I did the, the online version of this and made 82% more than I made on Broadway. And I was like, man, this is crazy. 82%? 82% more. So I performed at the Barrow Street Theater on the Lower East Side doing basic training the fall of 2008 off Broadway, right? And I compared my ticket sales to doing two nights in Vancouver at a 60-seat theater on Commercial Drive in Vancouver. And I made 82% more using a digital tool and all it did was it lets you reserve a spot for a couple of bucks up front. And then as you're leaving, you get a text or an email that says, how much did you think it was worth? That's amazing. The story is just so compelling. I love it. I love it. And so tell us a little bit more about the business side of things. How long have you been engaged in this full time? And what's the progress to date? Do you have customers? Do you have venues working with? Absolutely. So we're up and running in 15 cities around the world. We have, gosh over 40 different partners, venues, artists that are actively using the platform, paying customers. We only launched in public beta March of last year with two venues, sorry, two cities. Which were? Uh, New York, uh, the Soho Theater in New York and the Blumenthal Performing Arts Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. How did you convince them to be your, your uh, guinea pigs, I guess? Well, the Blumenthal Performing Arts Center was a gentleman named Tom Gabbard, who's the CEO of the Blumenthal, who had invested in me on Broadway back in the day when I was performing basic training. And he saw me because my show, Basic Training, sold out at the largest arts festival in the world called the Edinburgh Fringe. And I won the top writing and performing award called the Scotsman Fringe First. So I was in all the newspapers and creating a lot of buzz. And then Tom saw me and was like, listen, it, you know what it is, man? It's just like investing. You decided to take a chance. And he took a chance on me. And so when I came up with this idea, he was my first phone call. It's like, hey, Tom, I got something else crazy. <laughs> and he immediately recognized the need. Tom is a voting member of the Tony Awards. He's one of the most influential performing arts presenters in the U.S. and the U.K. And when he uses something, other venues go, ooh, what, what, what's that? You know, what, what, you know, what's going on? They kind of look to him and his company as a tastemaker. And, and so a lot of my first customers came from relationships that I had you know, being in, in the business since 1988 and uh, and building trust in, in the business. Yeah, that's so key. I talk about that quite a bit. Hey, on Foundation, this is a real nugget here. Your network matters. And so invest in it. And you never know that, especially if you want to be an entrepreneur, that this person who you know in one context can be an ally, a friend, a believer in your startup in that context. And investing in your network is so critical for entrepreneurs, especially if you want to be in industries where you don't already have big LinkedIn connections of industry luminaries. But you can usually find yourself one or two degrees removed from them. You happen to have been the right person, the right place, the right time, and you had a relationship, which matters. At the end of the day, when you're in an early startup, 
to get those first customers, those first investors, those first employees, co-founders. Yeah. I mean, they're betting on you. That's right. And like you were saying to your listeners to make sure that you leverage that network because you can buy clicks, but you can't buy trust. And and that's sort of why I feel like, you know, one of the moats that I have is that trust. And I mean, we have custom, we're doing events in French. We're doing things with, you know, I mean, so many different podcasts and documentaries and all these live events. And then to have this whole virtual event thing come across our desk is just, it's it's just amazing how when you actually do invest in your network, when you put yourself out there, you attract people who are looking for somebody who's real and, and, and is taking a chance on themselves. And so we, we've raised 93,000 US so far and have another 100K committed. And this is our seed round of, of 500,000. I saw you, Dan, down at uh, Founders Live in Seattle, and it's going a lot faster than I thought it would. And it's absolutely terrifying at times um, and, and scary. But at the same time, I wouldn't trade it for anything because, as you've heard, it, it, I have a weird set of skills, and this is probably the only thing I can really do. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I think that you were one of those people, I think, that would be a world changer in one way or another. If you were a teacher or an actor full-time or an entrepreneur, I think that com the combination of who you are and your experiences of definitely puts you in the right place. Okay. And so just to clarify, so you're you're currently raising a $500,000 round? That's correct. This will be your first outside money, I guess? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And so where does the company go forward from here? Well, I feel like where we go is focus because we're being offered opportunities to work with orchestras and museums and wildlife parks, <laughs> you know. This. Right. And, and so I feel like focus is where we really need to go. We, we know that the online event market is $10 billion. It's a $10 billion opportunity. You know, just the chunk that Live Nation has, you know, 40% of their tickets go unsold every year. On Broadway, 20% of their tickets go unsold every year. So what we do know is that there's an audience problem and, and it's harder to get people out of their seats. And so for us, focusing on that entertainment vertical is really where we know we can win because of the team that we have and the relationships we have that are early, influential at the right time with the right people. And really just, gosh, I mean, different languages, that excites me. We're different countries. I've been invited to the UK. We just launched in Sydney, Australia. Pending this coronavirus thing, we might get to do something in Japan. So that that's really where we go from here. And I feel like sort of the five-year plan is, you know, Dan, you and your friends hop off of a flight and, you know, you're in Barcelona on vacation and you pop open your We Show Up app and you are a part of a community of, of hundreds of millions of people who want to take a chance on quality arts, culture, and entertainment experiences. And you know that all of the venues and artists we work with not only allow you to pay afterwards, but you know it's going to be a great time. I love that vision. And I've looked at this, the industry before in the sports ticketing world, and this idea that it's perishable inventory, right? It's like, I can't sell a ticket to a show tonight, tomorrow. I can't sell a seat at a ball game that's happening tonight, tomorrow. Right. And so this idea of a disconnect with supply and demand, you know, people like the airlines have invested billions and billions into technologies to try and bridge that gap. Right. And yeah. for some reason, the entertainment world is kind of kicking and screaming, saying, yeah, we'll just leave 20 percent on the table just to have this guaranteed 80 percent. Right. As opposed to is there a way that we can find a hybrid? And so I love that you're part of that solution and I love your vision. And I like the idea that you're you're taking it from a communal point of view. They want to experience the the local culture. They wanted to meet people. So I think there's definitely room to build that out with We Show Up. Thanks. And you know, the other thing too is like with Airbnb, both can exist. You still have your Marriott's and your Wyndham's and your Four Seasons and you have Airbnb. And so even with our model with We Show Up, we work with venues that work with the ticketing companies and they can carve out a portion of the house for pay what you want. They can reach more diverse audiences for nonprofits. They get more funding if they can prove that they're doing things to substantially reach new audiences. So, yeah, you're right. There's so many more solutions. And, you know, for those who have an open mind, there's a whole lot of money to be made. Good stuff. We will take a short break again to hear from our sponsor and be right back with Khalil Ashanti from We Show Up. Hi. 
This is Nick Hughes from Founders Live, a growing global community of entrepreneurial inspiration, education, and entertainment. The Founders Live movement includes unforgettable live-streamed happy hour pitch competitions held in over 50 cities worldwide. And the monthly events are coupled with a growing online platform where articles, videos, expert talks, technologies, and tools together help create world-class entrepreneurs. Our vision is to raise the tide for all startup regions, but specifically second and third tier markets around the world to ultimately power the pulse of early stage entrepreneurship and creativity. We'd love for you to be a part of the movement. Check it out and join for free at founderslive.com. So we're back with Khalil Ashanti from We Show Up. So Khalil, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about being a black founder. Are there things that have manifested themselves to you that you can identify are specifically because you're a black founder? Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I mean, to give you a, an analogy, when I was performing magic in Japanese at Caesar's Palace, the guests would come in and they'd sit down and there would be a few non-Japanese people where they'd you know, be white people or, or whoever would be mixed in with them. And I'd come in and start performing. And I do it in two languages, English, and then I'd speak to them in Japanese. And people would be like, oh, my goodness, why you, you're, you're bilingual? Where did you study? And it was this sort of kind of veiled, kind of racist, kind of uh, un- discomfort right. of, whoa, my goodness, you, you're, where did you study? Like, you, you know, I mean, this surprise or... You don't fit the pattern. That's right. I don't fit the mold. And as you and your listeners have heard, there's not many molds I do fit. So I deal with that all the time, you know, and or you, you know, you're traveling as a black founder and you go to the lounge, Air Canada Lounge or American Airlines, wherever you're a member and you walk in and people are like, uh, can I help you, sir? No, no, I'm, I'm a member here. Oh, oh, <laughs> it's like Dave Chappelle is, you know, <laughs> you know, so there's this. I don't know, man. It's it's being a black founder. It's it's everywhere. It's it's just people's ignorance. And then you just read about all the how little black founders get funded and blah blah blah. And for me, man, it really is just about going back to that Jeffrey Tambor class of I'm responsible for my success, and all I can do is be so good that I can't be ignored. And there are some things that are just out of your control, but everything that I can do, I will do. And I'm not going to sacrifice my integrity to do it. I mean, that's a healthy, mature way to look at it for sure. I think the challenge we all face is this idea that, because I've talked to to younger folks, right? It's like, I, I kind of come from the same generation. It's like, put your head down, let your performance speak for itself, you know, keep your culture on the side, but yeah, you know, you can still have it. And young people are like, nah, man, I live out loud and that's just who I am. And yeah. so there's refreshing aspects of both and practicality, I guess, to both this whole idea of code switching and, and the, the mental overload that that has. Sorry to interrupt, but you know, this. Yeah, go ahead. you got to know your audience too, right? Like we, we can be who we are and all of this, but you know, me, me in the hood and me in the boardroom can't be the same person if you would truly want to appeal to these people and and have them invest in you like you got to be mature enough to understand and recognize what that continuum looks like yeah that makes sense absolutely i think it's not a one-size-fits-all approach Mm -hmm. have there been any allies or catalysts organizations that have been helpful to you specifically as a a founder of African descent? Yeah. I mean, you got people like Tom Gabbard at the Blumenthal Performing Arts Center, one of my first investors. You know, he's he's white. He doesn't care what color I am. I think you do attract. There are, you know, people of every color who are out there ready to support you if you show that you put in the work. I think there is, that is out there. And then you've got Harlem Capital. You've got Arlen Hamilton. You have you know, some of these organizations that are looking for black founders to help you through. And then you just have, I think the most important thing is the people you surround yourself with, your family, your friends, who are a a reflection of who you are. And I I have to say, that's been the combination for me that's been the most useful. Makes a lot of sense. And having sort of your, your squad or your tribe 
I think is important and that helps to ground you and support you and having people who are going to come in and, and believe in you like your first investor, that makes such a difference. Because being an entrepreneur is a lonely road, especially when you're early on, yeah. right? And you're trying to, to do something that doesn't exist or is different. And, you know, you're making a lot of decisions. You know, one day you're deciding, you know, should we should we do an investor roadshow in New York? And like an hour later, you're trying to decide, is our logo going to be blue or red? And all those decisions are happening in your head. And so it gets yeah. to be sort of this overloading, overwhelming thing. And so having having support from mentors and believers, I think, is, is so critical. Absolutely. Well said. So tell me about that logo you have. So the logo is the colors of the Japanese flag, which was the only time in my childhood I remember being happy. So that's the red and white. And the giraffe was an animal that I wanted to, to show something that was gentle, but sees things before everybody else. And so that's sort of why I chose the giraffe, because they are endangered. And I'm a, definitely an animal lover, but also to be able to let people know that using We Show Up, you know, you're going to see things before everybody else does. Wow, that's deep. I wouldn't have gone there. I, You know, the only giraffe that I know of is from the Toys R Us. That's right. Um, from a branding point of view. So uh, my mind immediately went to like, it's playful and fun and, and like entertaining. So yeah. but I love that concept. I think that to, to, if I could be so bold, that's a little bit of an analogy of you, right? Yeah. You're sort of this gentle force that sees things before other people yeah. in, in the environments that you have, you know, navigated through. Absolutely. Yeah, that's I've never heard that's a never thought of it that way. That that makes a lot of sense. Khalil the giraffe. <laughs> that's right. Your no, spirit animal. No, toys, yeah, that's right. Toys R Us went belly up, so I had to slide in there and get that giraffe, you know. That's all me now. So So you obviously seem like a person who is very good at sort of growth and introspection and trying to learn, but we always ask people sort of if you could go back say 10 years before you even had this idea but knowing that you were you were eventually going to enter the fray of the startup world, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah, probably it doesn't all have to happen today. Doesn't all have to happen today. I'm always in a rush. Still, I'm always in a hurry. Yeah, that's probably what I would say is that, you know, it put in the work and you'll get there and, and that you can't do it alone. I believe in God. I'm a Christian and I, I believe that we're not in this alone. And that uh, coincidence won't get you there, but you have to just stay the course, be patient and know that what's for you will be yours. That's great. I think this idea of patience is such an important aspect of entrepreneurship because for every Instagram story where things seem to appear out of nowhere and be worth a billion dollars, there's a long slog for most people with lots of ups and downs. And if you can weather the lows and, and enjoy the highs, but, you know, be able to stay the course, as you say, I think that's the big part of ultimately trying to be successful. And even if startups don't commercially become these permanent, scaled, profitable entities, I believe the entrepreneurial journey is so valuable yeah. in terms of how you learn, how you grow how you mature, how you can really test yourself. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's, like you said, there's a lot where it's, there's no script. There's no assistant waiting to help you. There's no IT team to fix your computer when it breaks. Yeah. You know, you're, you're staying in the one-star hotels, you That's know, right. or the cheap Airbnbs because, you know, can't, can't, you know, got to be really prudent with the dollars you have. And so patience is an important aspect. And so that's a great insight. Yeah. And you got to stay away from the magazines and the blogs and the LinkedIn posts where it, it, it would almost seem like, you know, the comparison is the thief of joy. And I think what we struggle with a lot as entrepreneurs is exactly that. You know, raising money is not a business model. So, right. <laughs> so it's, you know, you need the money when you need it. You got to scale when you got to scale, but that you, you are on your journey. Nobody else was birthed from your mother the way you were, unless you got a twin. And if you do, they're probably working with you. So, Right. Just stay your course and um, and stop looking at everybody else. 
So right. Your story reflects the the story of the people who ultimately pushed through. It's because the world needs this. I figured it out. I think I'm the one that needs to do it. And I hope there's investors and employees and partners and mentors and everybody else who will get on board. And some will and some won't, but I'm moving ahead. That's right. And, and I just, you know, the world needs this and I'm going to solve it. So I think you're right that, that raising money and even some of the accelerators, I sometimes think it's kind of an extension of college and it's more of a project to people, yeah. you know, like a way to pass your time. And I'm not diminishing anybody's startup journey, but I think you, if you don't go in it with the the approach of this is a burning thing that I have figured out needs to be solved. And I may not have the exact answer today, but I'm going to be one of the ones that works the hardest to try to solve it. That's right. So we're coming to the end of our time. Unfortunately, I could talk to you for hours and hours. Your story is awesome. And I would encourage you, please share it with, with many people as possible. I know your time for one-man shows is going to be limited these days, but really inspirational. Thank you. So before we go, maybe let the folks know, is there a way to get a hold of you? How can they find out more information about We Show Up? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me at weshowup.io. That's all one word, W-E-S-H-O-W-U-P dot I-O. Um, Khalil, K-A-H-L-I-L, at weshowup.io. And I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too, so you can stalk me there. Or KhalilAshanti.com, all one word. Outstanding. Well, this has been really great. I'm so appreciative. Thank you so much, Khalil. My pleasure, man. Thanks for the intro, and it was it was good to meet you. Hopefully, we get to hang again sometime soon in Seattle. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our guest, Khalil Ashanti, and our sponsor, Founders Live. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Founders Unfound. This podcast was produced by Dan Kihanya. Our music was composed by Bobby Cole, Neil Cross, Emmanuel D'Antoni, and Michael Kihanya. I am Dan Kihanya. You've been listening to Founders Unfound.